Vocation work is a challenging topic to talk about in our post-industrial revolution age that we are in. This is the world that we live in, and the working framework that we've been given is that work is intended from 16 to 69, after which you retire, never to have to work another day in your life. And then we're given this narrative that in work, you're to do what makes you happy, or to do what makes you a lot of money, or to do what makes you satisfied. Leslie Nope, fictional... (laughs) the fictional deputy director in a show, Parks and Rec, said this about work. We have to remember what's important in life. Friends, waffles, and work. Or work, or waffles, friends, and work. But work has to come third, she said. Work has to come third between friends and waffles. Leslie's statement, though, is maybe not always felt that work should go third. Actually, many people treat their work as the most important thing in their life. Any Billy Joel fans in the room? Billy Joel, okay. If my mother-in-law was in the room, her hand would shoot up, I know that. Billy Joel sang a song once called Moving Out, um, also known as Anthony's Song. And in it, he describes a boy, Anthony, who works in a grocery store saving his pennies for some day. A sweet older lady, Mama Leone, sees how hard this Anthony is working and says, leaves a post-it note on his door and says, son, you've got to move out to the country. Why? Why would she say that? Well, because as Billy Joel sings, working too hard can give you a heart attack, ack, 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 ack. (laughs) If you haven't heard that song, you should go listen to it. It was a perfect representation of Billy Joel there. (laughs) Just kidding. Now, what Billy Joel sang about 45 years ago is exactly what a recent study has come to find out of University College London. They, what they did is they looked at 500 people uh, to determine the health risks of working over 55 hours or more in a week, what's commonly called overwork now. They found that those who worked more than these 55 hours per week had 13% greater risk of a heart attack and 33% more likely to suffer a stroke compared with those who worked 35 to 40 hours a week. For some, even here sitting here this morning, this may be necessary to work that much. For some others, uh, 55 hours seems like chump change. I, Casey, that's, that's like if I can get a minimum of 55 hours, I'm lucky. You may also sit there and say, Casey, I work 8 to 10 hours a day. Give three to five hours to my family, driving them around, getting them places or just spending time with them. One hour to cook dinner, two hours to clean the house. And then I open my email for another one to two hours and try to get six to seven hours of sleep. My whole life seems like work other than sleep. And that may be true. But it will begin actually to be helpful to start with what we mean by work. Are all of those things work? Are they vocation? Well, vocation may be a new term to you. I want to define that for us. Vocare is the Latin word there at the root there that means to call. And so vocation could be understood to be a calling, which then implies that there's someone who is doing the calling. And that's where we see God's sovereignty, the fact that our vocation, our work is not our own, that God has called us to it. It's where we see God's sovereignty and directing and guiding us into various situations that we find ourselves, whether jobs or relationships or challenges. 
without the ability to touch on all of those topics, which I would love to, what we'll do is we'll zoom in this morning on working, on our work. Now, when you hear work, your job might be the first thing that comes to mind, and that's fine. But what I want us to actually do is to expand our understanding of work this morning, and more than just that which we get a paycheck for. And so think about it this way. When I speak of work this morning, I'm talking more about contribution than compensation. More about contribution than compensation. Now, I'm not talking about one or the other, because there are many ways that we contribute to the greater good where we actually receive compensation. Those who work at nonprofits, for instance, there may also be ways that we, uh, so we contribute without compensation. There may be ways that we do that. So I want you to think more broadly than merely work for pay. This includes work around the house, like doing dishes, trimming, trimming bushes, folding laundry. It also, though, includes parenting and relationships and good deeds for those in need. All of these require work. And now notice that all of these are contributions for the greater good. There are contributions, however, that can be made that actually are bad contributions. Working for the mob. Any mobsters in here this morning? Okay, don't. That would be a bad contribution to society. Working uh, in marketing at a, for a gambling site it would be a bad contribution. Maybe a car repair shop that recommends that repairs actually that aren't needed would be a bad contribution, paying for something that's not needed. If you question the goodness of your contributions, maybe you need to consider getting out of that position. But let me restate real quick. We'll be primarily looking this morning at ways in which you contribute to the greater good more than merely where you make money. So with that in mind, let's consider this morning how the gospel affects our work. And the big idea I hope you walk out of here this morning is this, doing your work well is essential for the Christian life. Doing your work well is essential to the Christian life. Christians, we have the ability to view our work both as service to neighbor, but also as worship to God, worship to the king of the universe, which means that we actually want to do our work well, right? And so this morning, I want to give you five ways that Christians work well. Number one, recognize the king. Two, rhythm intentionally. I know that rhythm is not a verb. You could put, you could put down set your rhythms intentionally, but we're moving forward with that for alliteration purposes. Rhythm intentionally. Resist idolatry. Restore dignity and root your identity. Root your identity. So let's start with number one. Recognize the king. Recognize the king. The first thing we must do with our work is to recognize the king, the creator of our work. The conflicted spirit that we're handed in our jobs, though, is to either submit in everything we do to uh, the bosses or the managers that we have over us, to do everything that they want us to do. Or the conflicted spirit is that we need to stick it to the man and revolt against the elites. The managers and executives either become the people we do work for or they're the people we do work in spite of. 
Or uh, we think too grandly of those in authority, that we lose actually focus of who created work, where it's supposed to come from, who keeps us in our work, who enables us to work, and who it's ultimately presented to. So let's take each of those kind of categories in mind, each of those questions, and consider them in turn. First, where did work and its purpose come from? Where did work and its purpose come from? And we can find the answer to this at the very start of our Bibles in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's creation of the world was the first work inside of space and time and matter. He worked for six days creating everything, everything within space, time, and matter. But then he rested on the seventh day. Then we get a zoomed-in description if we move over a chapter to Genesis 2 when we actually find why God puts man into the garden. And it says to work and keep it. To work it and to keep it. And so besides being made in God's image and being called to image forth God, actually this is the primary way that we image forth God. One of the primary ways that we image. And so before the introduction of sin into the world, In the fall, we see that work was given as a primary purpose of humanity. It's essential to who we are. The primary job of humans was to image forth God by working and serving within God's own work of creation. Whether farming, graphic design, woodworking, or parenting, this is the purpose of work, to image forth God. After the fall of humans through sin, work is still described as being an integral part of the human existence. Timothy Keller, a pastor, a former pastor in New York City, has even said that work is as much a basic need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simply medicine, but food for our souls. Part of the purpose of why we're created. There's a design in work that is meant for our flourishing. Then in Genesis 3, we read that the result of sin's entrance into the world is that work will be harder. Just generally, work will be harder. The work of childbearing, the work of child rearing, along with the work working at the ground, and really all other forms of work will just be more taxing. Yet our purpose is to image forth God by working and serving within God's own work of creation. That still stands. And it's just, it's just going to be more challenging. And so who then calls us and keeps us in our work? Well, we may think that our bosses or the hiring managers at our company who hire and fire us are the ones who determine whether we should be and call us into our work. However, we should recognize God's sovereignty in the acquisition or the loss of work. For Adam and Eve, they were sent out. It's entirely in God's hands. After they sinned, God sent them out to work the gar- the, away from the garden in the thorny and thistly ground outside of the garden. In Genesis 4, we then begin to see a variety of work. We see Abel as a keeper of sheep, that Cain was a worker of the ground, In Cain's line, we actually see even more variety begin to pop up. Nomadic shepherds, musicians, bronzesmiths, ironsmiths. These these various jobs became essential for the building of cities and societies, and it was necessary that these workers not only do their job, but be gifted by God to do their work well. So later, 
what we see is as Israel is leaving Egypt in the Exodus, God directs them to build a tabernacle. But skilled craftsmen are needed for this. And so in, Genesis, or in Exodus 31, God calls two craftsmen and fills them with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Many times, God's calling is by how he's gifted us. Other times, it's simply because there is a need. Many times, we kind of fall into a calling, but we must trust God whenever a particular season of work comes to an end. And all work, whether shepherding or making coffee or fixing cars or changing dirty diapers, which will come to an end. For those parents of young kids in the room, that will come to an end. Or, or maybe planning events, all of these contribute to the greater good. We must see that. So God calls us and keeps us in our work. So then who should we present our work to? Well, we present our work to God and, his, and for his glory. And in so doing, we actually fulfill our chief end, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this means that we may have a boss who observes our work, but really we're working for our king who is way above our boss. We follow what Paul says in Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Do you guys read that with me? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Just before this verse, Paul actually talks about those who do work for eye service or as people pleasers. But that should not be the first motivation of a Christian. No, the first motivation of a Christian should not be to present their work to their coworkers or to their manager. It should be to present it to the Lord, our King. Now, there's something inherent in our work that looks to show or display or present our work to someone for an affirmation of a job well done. And this is where we often get confused as a culture. Is, is my work for myself? Is it for my boss? Is it for social media? Is it for my LinkedIn page? Is it merely for the greater good? Whose affirmation do we care most about and who do we desire to get the glory through our work? Well, all of these questions get to the aim of the heart of our work. What's in the crosshairs of why we do what we do every day? And this should be none other than God's glory. God's glory. That every day as our feet hit the cold floor in the morning, that we should repeat solely Deo Gloria, that today may today be all for God's glory, for God's glory alone. And so firstly, you must recognize King Jesus and work for him and his glory. Then you seek to learn from God about how to go about patterning your life. So first, you recognize the king. Second, um, our, the second way in which we do this is we rhythm intentionally, or we set our rhythms intentionally. For those English, you know, really sticklers that know that, you know, rhythm is not a verb. So we rhythm intentionally. Now, the Bible says for the for those who are able to work, it's a necessity for humans. Not only are we created to work and contribute for God's glory, we are to work 
to eat and provide. Paul reminds the church in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And then look at 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, he is a, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Work is necessary, but there is something else that is just as necessary to the human experience as work. It's rest. If we look at the framework of the creation story, we see that God does his work in six days and rests on the seventh. Then in Exodus 20, as the fourth commandment is being given to God's people, he says this to them. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and, on, and, and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or even the sojourner who is in your gates. Now notice this. Why does Moses say humans should observe the pattern of work and rest? For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now, without getting into whether or not we as Christians are obligated to obey the fourth commandment, what we have to recognize is the fact that the rhythm of work and rest is ingrained into the pattern of creation. If you are a creator, that is ingrained into the pattern of what your life is to look like. And so another way that we image forth God into the world is by imitating him in his pattern of working six days and resting the seventh, by having a pattern of work and rest. And as creatures, we should seek to follow this pattern because it's designed for our flourishing. There's no doubt that the current culture of the marketplace is to never shut off our work. And the, the work that we get paid for, at least. And in many positions, you're expected to be on call all the time. An example is to, that you need to continually check and respond to email even after work hours. But if we can succumb to the pressure of, to overwork or to surrender to the glamorized picture of grinding success, then we will work against the creational grain of work and rest, and you will burn out. If we work against the creational grain of work and rest, what we also do is end up neglecting other human basic needs like sleep, hygiene, relationships. And so let me turn this to you. Do you have one day or at least an hour or two on a day that each week that you set aside away from your usual work whatever that is, whatever that looks like, to do something that re-energizes, reinvigorates, restores your soul. Something that you can actively direct your heart in worship and in gratitude toward the Lord while you do it. Rest is a gracious gift to remind us to depend on God. If you didn't hear that, I'm gonna say it again. Rest is a gracious gift to remind us that we depend on on God. This may or may not mean a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon nap for you. This may mean plucking weeds from the garden. That's rest to you. It could mean playing a round of golf or disc golf 
which is my most recent rest activity. Or maybe playing a round of clearance shopping at Kohl's. It could be your game that you rest with. There is quite a bit of subjectivity, though, to this. And so slow down. What I'd ask you to do is slow down long enough to diagnose what it looks like for you to rest, whether it's an activity or a non-activity that fills you up. Now, more than likely, your rest is going to look pretty different depending on what your work is. If your regular work is sitting sedentary at a desk, then rest for you will probably look like getting out and doing an activity outside or hiking or walking, something like that. If your regular work, though, is in a, in a warehouse or at a construction site, your rest will probably look like sitting down with a good book in the living room. If your regular work is raising and chasing kids all around, all day, your rest will probably look like sitting alone in the peace of the front porch or Starbucks. There's a heavy dose of subjectivity here, and so slow down. Slow down long enough for, for what it looks like for you to rest, and then plan it. If you're married, talk with your spouse about it. This is what will re-energize me. This is what will restore my soul in the Lord and the worship of God. Make it easy for your spouse to find rest each week, and you'll be amazed at how you flourish as you receive God's gracious gift of rest. Now, saying that, sin corrupts everything, doesn't it? The beautiful picture of work and the pattern of rest and work becomes warped after the fall. It becomes harder to do. There's more pressing needs. There's challenges involved. Reading off the cultural teleprompter, though, we may tend to believe that we should only work if, you know, it, if we're able to be true to ourselves or get what we feel we need out of our work. Well, what this really does is it reveals our idols. So another way that we can work well is to resist idolatry. This is the third point for this morning, to resist idolatry. Another way that Christians can work well is by resisting idolatry. Now, because sin corrupts even our motivations, there are three particular idols that Christians must resist through our work, through worshiping through our work. And that's approval, worth, and comfort. Approval, worth, and comfort. In our work, whether consulting or flipping burgers or selling insurance or landscaping, we may believe that getting the thumbs up is what you need to keep going. Or you may believe that through your work, you will prove your value to others with the hope that maybe you'll feel valued and wanted. You may actually believe that earning more than enough money is the only thing that will bring you real lasting comfort. So let's look briefly at each of these idols, starting off with approval. Those who worship the idol of others' approval is who call, Paul calls people pleasers. This means that we not only want to notice, we, we want others to notice our work, but in our heart we actually depend on others giving us a thumbs up. This idol blinds Christians to the rooted identity that is already theirs in Christ because of, because of Christ's righteousness, we already have all of the approval we need. By justification, God has already swung his gavel and said, justified, you are right with me. You are forgiven and you are my adopted son or daughter. 
That's our identity. But if you're looking for others' approval and you depend on that in order to go on through your life, then you're not actually looking to give God the glory through your work. You're actually to live, you're seeking to live a me-glorifying life, which actually aligns closer with the words of the preeminent philosopher, Michael Scott, when he beautifully captured this. He said this, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like a compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. (laughs) And man, don't we feel that sometimes in our work? Like, man, I'm really at a deficit of people approving of of my work. Do you need to be appraised in your work? Or praised in your work? Do you need approval? Do you end up having a crappy day if you don't get enough positive comments directed your way? Are you maybe angered at critique that's levied against your work without which you seem like there's not, a, there's not an appropriate like balancing out of praise here? Like you're critiquing me a lot and there's not very much pra- I need this. This could be an indicator of the idol of others' approval and that it's present in your life. If this idol is revealed, I'd actually really recommend digging into the next idol to see if this is somewhere lurking inside, the idol of worth. If you're looking to make a name for yourself through your work, you should consider whether you're actually worshiping the idol of worth. Through social media and LinkedIn, the idol of worth thrives. However, we don't do this necessarily for others' approval. We actually do it for our own approval, to feel valuable about ourselves. We think, well, if, if I can show others what I've done, maybe they'll value me. And, and you know what? If they value me, maybe I'll be convinced that I'm valuable too. This is what we see taking place actually in Genesis 11. It's kind of interesting. At the Tower of Babel, the people get together and declare that they want to actually make a great tower Why? Because they said to each other, let us make a name for ourselves. We want to be valuable. We want God to come down and actually be like, you guys, you guys got it going on. I want to be like you. I said, I want to make, we want to make a name for ourselves. And this idol of worth is not looking to God for our worth. It's actually looking for others to We want to be convinced that we are valuable, and so we attempt to prove our worth and value through our work. Now, maybe others' approval or your own self-worth are not the idols that you worship, but maybe comfort is. The idol of comfort is sneaky. It works its way in as a means of, I mean, we get convinced, I want to live how I want to live. And so comfort seeks to make money to both insulate us from challenges and to become self-reliant. The idol of comfort actually then convinces us that being holistically generous is worthless to the concern of our own self-interest. And so I'm not speaking against like wisely saving for the future here. No, 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 I'm talking about hoarding. And the Bible has a ton to say about hoarding for the sake of comfort. In Luke 12, Jesus himself tells a parable about a man who filled up his storehouses with food. He, he filled it up, and then after storing up so much, he had no more space that he ended up building an even bigger storehouse for all of his resources that he could hoard. 
And he says to himself, I want to be able to say to myself this, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. God responds here in the parable to this, to this heart motivation and says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Jesus concludes actually summarizing what he's saying in this parable by giving a warning to those who store up treasure for him or herself not being and not being rich towards God. Don't lay up treasures for yourself and, and are not rich towards God. It's a stunning indictment that should either cause us to consider our lifestyles or to take serious consideration of our heart motivation. God is the only one who promises actually to provide comfort. He's the only one. He doesn't ever tell his people actually go and seek comfort. He says, I am your comfort. He is the God of all comfort. In Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people. God is the only one that we should look to for comfort. And so rather than storing up, we should heed Jesus's words. We should also heed Paul's words in Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that, the reason being, he may have something to share with anyone in need. Instead of looking to our own self-interest, do you have the aim to share what you have with others in need? If Christians can resist the idols of approval, of self-worth, of of comfort through their work, then they will better be able to recognize the king and restore dignity to all work, which is the fourth way that Christians can work well that we'll look at this morning, and that's to restore dignity, to restore dignity. When God created humans, he said this in Genesis 1, 26, about restoring dignity. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all of the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along on the ground. Now this rule that God has given to humans in imaging forth him is, is another primary way that that humans imaged forth God to the world. He had just finished, God had just finished bringing order out of chaos. And so we're being advised through this to rule, bring order out of chaos. Whether the email inbox or the kids' attitudes or in a lab experiment, seek to bring order out of chaos. That means that humans rule over the chaos that we find every day and we seek to bring order to it. That's why it's a really good idea to wake up in the morning and start your time off with God's word before you pick up that phone because there is a ton of chaos out there for you to engage with on your phone and you may not be able to bring much order to it, but you've got a heart that needs to depend on the Lord that day. And so maybe you need to, first thing, go to God's word and allow him to reorder your heart, to bring order out of chaos. You need to structure a day in which you're able to bring order out of chaos. We see in Genesis 39, Joseph, as a great example of someone who it didn't matter what he was doing, his goal was to rule as God had intended him to rule, to bring order out of chaos. He, worked at his, he, he did his work to the best of his ability. He was in Potiphar's house, then he was in prison, and he worked all of it with all of his might because he knew that the Lord 
was with him. He recognized the king and restored dignity. The world around, though, wants to stratify the dignity of some work over others. The physical kind of work, the working with our hands, is the only kind of real work, some say. Others will say that the world depends on the mental work done by those in maybe high-rise offices. If we believe, though, either of those narratives will actually begin trivializing certain work, which will be to downplay different kinds of ruling by different image bearers. Martin Luther, uh, a reformer, one of the first reformers of the Protestant Reformation in the 1600s, actually had something to say about this. He looked at Psalm 145, verse 15, and believed that all work has a dignity to it because God always uses means. He always uses means, um, ambassadors. And so look at Psalm uh, 145.15 with me. The eyes of all look to you, he's talking to God, and you give them their food in due season. He feeds all in due season. Now, Luther took then from this verse and others within Psalm 145 that all work that is human contributions to, for the greater good is dignified to the level that It all means that God is feeding his people. Through all of it, God is feeding his people. We could respond, well, isn't the farmer, the baker, the retailer, the website programmer, the truck driver, and all the other people who contribute, aren't they the ones that we should credit as giving us food? Well, Luther responds, God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. He doesn't want to do so. He uses means as a means of uh, bringing food to his people. He would would later preach about even so low a job as, as a milkmaid on the farm. He says, God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. By doing so, he shows that even the most menial tasks are have dignity and contribute to the greater good. And so what should that tell us? We should look to do a good job in whatever task is in front of us. We should look to do a good job. That may mean that you're given the task of cleaning a parking lot at your workplace. Are you going to complain? Oh, that's way below me. That's undignified for me. No, Christians do their work well. And so be the best parking lot cleaner that you can be. If you're given that task, grab a pair of gloves, pick up every crushed monster can, every soggy napkin, pick up every cigarette butt that you can find. Now, that's not a made-up task. Actually, when I was 17 and working at Chick-fil-A, I was given that task, and I thought, like, there's no way I should be in the back filling those boxes with fries. should be pouring extra salt on it because it's so good. The waffle fries, that's my calling. Don't you know? And no, I was given the broom and dustpan and said, go out, start cleaning up. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, at first, I did not think that was a very dignified job. But it was one that I eventually came to take pride in. After cleaning up back by the the drive-thru counter, you know, drive-thru lane where you give your order, I can't tell you how many countless hundreds, maybe even thousands of cigarette butts that I on my hands and knees, picked up, threw in the trash bag. Of course, the trash bag is only like this full because they're so small, but it took 
three hours, there was actually a joy in seeing, oh, there's not as many here as there were before, right? If you do a good job, recognize the king in your work and present your work to him as worship, then we will actually seek to do a good job in whatever we're called to do. And in glorifying God through our work, we're able to enjoy the fruit of our work so much more. So please hear this clearly this morning. Whether you're a musician, a writer, a programmer, a mother, a father, a woodworker, a financial advisor, stock trader, an artist, or a student, do a good job at your work. Right? Listen to how the preacher in Ecclesiastes 3.22 actually says, he says, there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. So there's a joy and a satisfaction to doing a good job, to doing a job well done. Dorothy Sayers, an, an English mystery writer and, and poet, once said that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be a drunk or a disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. Any of you feel like maybe that's just, that's just what you're being told each week, which we hope that that's not what you hear, but maybe, maybe that's all you hear because you hear kind of a gap between Sunday and Monday. How is the church actually influencing what I do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Well, she goes on, what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. That he should make good tables. That's the first demand, to do a good job. And that's, that's it. How does a Christian be a good Christian musician? By making good music. How are you to be a good Christian cook? By making good food. There's a, there's a funny illustration that a, a pastor one time told about pilots. You know, he, he brought this up and he said, well, how do I, you know, a pilot came up to him and said, how do I integrate, you know, my faith with my work? How do I do that? Um, and the pastor, he said, he said should, should I be passing out tracks to people on my way through the terminal? Like, what should I be doing? And the pastor said, you know what, I'll, I'll tell you what you need to be a Christian pilot. I'll tell you, you need to land the plane. Land, preferably so that it can take off again, but, but land the plane. Make sure that everybody is safe. Take pride in a job well done, in doing your task and doing it well. Now, all of this even means that when you're unloading the dishwasher or loading the dishwasher, load it in such a way that all the dishes are able to be cleaned. Don't just shove all the dishes in as a chaotic way, as chaotic of a way as possible. And husbands, don't look at your wives or, or back and forth. Don't, don't do that. Seek to bring order out of chaos. Seek to rule over those dishes by bringing order out of chaos. One way that Christians can do their work well is by restoring dignity to great tasks and menial tasks alike and by doing a good job at all of them. Now, if we do a good job with our work, we're able to see that our fifth and final point this morning, a rooted identity, or what I'm commending you to do is to root your identity this morning. If you remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Justin taught about how the modern identity is an achieved identity. It tells us you have to achieve something in order to be worth, worthy. 
You're always working to achieve status or favor or attempting to prove that our, that our lives mean something to the world. If we can validate our existence through our work, then we'll be able to live a happy and fulfilled life. Or at least we're told. The gospel of Jesus actually gives us a radically different picture. The gospel tells us that there is a separation between God and sin, sinful humans and that we can do we can't do anything to earn a right or righteous standing before God. He redeems and adopts by his grace. We have only to turn and to trust in Jesus. And so then, as redeemed sons and daughters of the king of, king of the universe, Christians have the unique ability to be, have a rooted identity, no matter what happens around them. They can be mistreated, misjudged, or even fired, and their identity is not affected because, they're, because of their rooted identity in Christ. Christians can, maybe even in their work, miss the mark, miss a deadline, or feel like an utter and complete failure in their work. Yet they are beloved sons and daughters of the king still. This is true. However, this might be a helpful way to think about how should I plan to perform at my job if you know, I'm supposed to do a good job. What, what else should I be thinking through here? I, I think you could and should think about your performance at your job in terms of competency, not adequacy. Adequacy carries with it the idea of doing just enough in your job to accomplish a task. No need for improvement. Just go along. As, as long as you can complete your work, you've done an adequate job. Don't let adequacy define your work. Adequacy is doing the bare minimum. Now, competency, on the other hand, carries with it the idea of proficiency or excelling skillfulness to accomplish a task successfully. Adequacy is doing the bare minimum, and in the end, it's boring work. Competency, though, displays a desire to excel so as to meaningfully contribute to the greater good, and in the end, you'll not have boring work, you'll see beautiful work. See, work that is skilled, like the craftsman in Exodus 31. Competency flows much easier from a received identity, a rooted identity, than that of an achieved identity. Growing in competency means that you recognize that you will make mistakes. You will miss the mark sometimes. But also you recognize that you should Steward the gifts, the tasks, the opportunities that God actually has given you. You steward them and attempt to do them well to the best of your ability for his glory. Now, Jesus taught this. We need to look no further than Jesus' parable of the three servants who were given talents. Two of the three went and traded and improved on their master's talents. One of them was given five. He made five more and had ten altogether. Another one was given two talents, this money, and he went and made two more talents and gave the four to his master. But then the one servant who was given a single talent went and dug a hole, put the talent in, and put the dirt back on top of it, only to return that single solitary talent to the master. Now, Jesus was not passive against this guy. He didn't just say, well, he did his best. No, he calls him. He was indignant. He actually calls him a wicked 
and slothful servant. Why? Because he did an adequate job. He returned the money that he was given. He didn't seek to improve upon it, to steward it well. And so let me plead with you this morning, root your identity in Christ. If you've never believed in the gospel, I'd invite you to turn from looking to yourself or really anywhere else other than Christ for your identity and trust in him this morning. The only way to survive the storms of life with any sort of ballast is by having an identity that is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because he has promised to come again. And when he comes, we will be made new. And the essential nature of work to humanity will continue into the new heaven and new earth. Because work is one way that we image forth God to the world. And so we're called to do that forever. He alone gives purpose, purpose to our work, though. Maybe you're here and you're a believer and you've been really struggling with your work. Is it contributing in a good way? Am I able to set rhythms of work and rest in my life? Should I change jobs? Should I stay at my job forever? It's possible to touch on every, it's not possible to touch on everything in one sermon, so I want to recommend some action steps for you to take if you're maybe there this morning. One, search the scriptures. Look for principles in God's word to guide you. Two, get wise counsel. Talk to people who know you, know your gifting, your passions. Ask them if they could see you doing this or that opportunity, and then listen to them. Third, pray. Ask God to reveal your motives to you. Ask him if you're worshiping an idol, and ask him for the power to resist it. Tell him that you want to follow his guidance and walk in obedience. And then four, make a decision. Don't over-spiritualize it. If you have a sense of God's guidance, go for it. If it's not disobedience and it's not a bad contribution to the greater good, do it. But most of all for everyone, see your work as worship and seek to do your work well. Because for Christians, that's essential. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have this, had this morning to consider that our work is not our own that you have actually called us, equipped us, gifted us, made an opportunity possible for us. And so we submit all of those to you. Lord, I pray for those in here who are struggling with their work right now. They can't seem to improve. They can't seem to see your hand in either keeping them there or in getting some work. Lord, I ask that you would allow them to see your sovereignty, that you, you will bring the perfect season in to their lives when you have planned to give them grace for it. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to consider how the gospel affects our work. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now,